Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Lions Out by Donkeys podcast. I am Joe, and with me, trapped on this island of Japan, uh, I, I've ran out of intros, is... Tom, what's up, buddy? I am single-handedly destroying the Neo Tokugawa Shogunate from uh, uh, Lions Led by Robots. We are, we are taking the world by storm. Um, I'm good, Joe. How are you? I am tired. <laughs> so me too. Last night was uh, my was was a birthday party. So I of course went out to a birthday party. Had not actually not that much to drink. Um. But um, I don't really drink much anymore. Mm-hmm. But I except with me, yeah, of course. Whenever we drink together, it is like I'm actively trying to murder my organs with <laughs> with street food and Guinness. Um, but I did steal quite a few cigarettes from a friend of the show and a guest over on the History of Armenia sub series, Neil Hauer, who came and visited. And then this, I, I could not sleep because when I drink, I cannot sleep. Even if I, if I have more than two beers, I'm sleeping at most three hours, right? Uh, so I've been up since like 5, 6 a.m., something like that. And I'm like, well, fuck it. I'm up early. I'm going to go to the gym. And I, I, I do deadlifts. Uh, and it is then at 9 a.m. while I'm doing deadlifts, I have remembered I have not eaten anything. Um, the only thing in my body is residual cigarette, uh, cigarettes and, uh, like one too many, uh, like Belgian quad beers that are like 10% alcohol. And my brain leaps into another dimension as I pull this weight upwards and I promptly black the fuck out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you saw God. Yeah. Um, I, I collapse to my knees and over the barbell. I don't hit my head on the ground, thankfully. Like I didn't fully pass out. I'm fine. But anybody who's who's seen videos of people deadlifting probably knows what I'm talking about. Um Hey, at least you at least you didn't piss yourself or vomit on the platform. Well, I just left so. that part out. I have to have some dignity, you know? Um, no, I, I, did, I did what's called the grand slam which is when I vomit shit and piss myself simultaneously um, yeah Joe is uh, bringing out a lines led by donkeys deadlifting diaper yeah. for anyone interested yep and then after I was done uh, I, I finally got an apartment here and uh, it's completely unfurnished which is something I have grown unaccustomed to since leaving the United States most apartments mm-hmm. come furnished in Armenia and this one does not. Uh, so I've had to order the finest furniture IKEA has to offer, um, and I have to be there for delivery. And I live about seven kilometers away. Um, and so I'm, I, I I grab like a spinach boric from one of those very Dutch food cabinet places on mm-hmm. my way home from the gym because I just need to eat something. Um, and th- I I have forty five minutes before I have to be there. I'm timing this perfectly, Tom. I fucking nailed it, right? And then I get a call. Hello, is this Joe? Well, I'm I'm 20 minutes from your apartment. Fuck! Shit! Yasha, 
Yash, is this Joe? We've got we've got your furniture. We need to deliver to your house. I I have a very important appointment later on. I need to put boot polish on my face. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck, shit. I, and I'm like, I have to get there in twenty goddamn minutes. The tram takes twenty five, but cycling takes sixteen. I can make it if I cycle. <laughs> so I jump on my bicycle and I take off. I still have a spinach boric in my hand as I'm gunning it down the bike lane through the Hague. Um, <laughs> I cut off way too many people, including a car, <laughs> and I make it there. But I have dressed too warm for this. And by the time I get there, I am sweating my fucking balls off. And the moving guy, normally they send like a team of people. It's just one small Dutch man, and he's moving this entire cabinet up the stairs into my apartment. He's like, oh, excuse me, could you help? I was like, God damn it, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) You were moving like a divine wind, you could say. So I'm dragging this shit up into my apartment. And finally, I put it down there. And I'm like, I got to cycle the fuck back because I didn't bring any of my recording shit. (laughs) I jump back on my bike and cycle the fuck back. And that is how I've spent my entire day so far. <laughs> I mean, like, I uh, I came in nice and early this morning because we were uh, I had deliveries of t-shirts coming. Uh, they were supposed to come at eleven. They didn't come until twelve. So Joe went and took a shower while we waited. Um, yeah, I I was I was ripe by the time I got back between working out and panic pedaling through downtown The Hague in a in a in a winter bomber jacket, and the one day the Netherlands decides to be like 50 degrees outside. Yeah, you definitely look like the world's most expedient crack dealer ever. Yeah, I got some weird looks. Um, But yeah, um, also, uh, don't really know when this episode's coming out, but uh, once again, we're doing a f- an insert from Future Tom about the January 26th and 27th first ever Lions Led by Donkeys live show in well, first London. and second, I guess we could say now. <laughs> now, fuck you. Okay, anyway, future Tom, here you go. Hey, everyone. So, the first night, January the 26th, is now sold out. That is, there are no tickets available left for January 26th. There is still some tickets for January 27th. That is the Saturday night. So, if you haven't gotten your tickets, get them now. Um, we are advising everyone to purchase their merch before the show just because we have a hard curfew on both nights so you'll have about an hour between when doors open at 6 p.m and when the show starts around 7 to get yourself a drink get some food and pick up some merch maybe so looking forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks thank you future tom um yeah no i've had i've had a really good morning like my shirts arrived for beneath the skin so i was really happy with how they came out i'm having a good day i haven't eaten anything and i'm gonna go to the gym so i'm gonna finish this go across to the shop and take whatever pastries they have and shove them in my mouth before i go hit chest hell yeah um speaking about hitting things we talk about (laughs) (laughs) we talk about kamikazes a lot on this show tom uh, that was just you doing deadlifts this morning. Yeah, no coming back, boys. That was my soul hitting the fucking ground, um, and my and my spirit ascending the astral plane. Um, so we did an episode about kamikazes year ago, years ago. I guess it's kamikaze. I don't think there's a plural on that. Whatever. Um, so you know, the kamikaze are the suicidal latch last ditch effort weapon deployed by the Empire of Japan in the form of packing shitty planes full of explosives 
slapping a teenager behind the sticks and crashing them motherfuckers directly into American warships. However, we've never talked about the origin of the word kamikaze and what it means, or divine wind. And for that, we have to go back to the 13th century when the Mongol Empire under Kublai Khan attempted to invade Japan. Have you- oh, man, I, I love Kublai Khan. Like, just such an interesting, like, historical figure in period and time. We will eventually, I suppose, try and do a series about him, but yeah. Yeah, uh, I, and I like uh, Mongol-related history in general, and you're probably wondering, Joe, if you like this period of history, why the fuck don't you ever talk about it? Good question. I don't know. <laughs> I I got nothing for you. I just write what I... Sometimes I fall into wormholes. I can't help much, it. Much like everyone's dad in the, like, 2000s sitting on the couch watching TV, we are obsessed with World War II, so... You know, I'm really not... Um, It was never my field of study, either in undergrad or graduate school. Um, As everybody is well aware, I got really into Napoleonic logistics in um, my undergraduate, and I studied, you know, lighthearted subjects in grad school. Um, World War II was never really my academic passion as much as it was. Mm. Like many of your dads, I also watched too much History Channel in the same time, I just happened to be like 10 years old and I my mom was at work. So I watched the most <laughs> horrific shit ever on TV. Um, and, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of history podcasts, whatever. There's a lot of pop history, you know, whatever you want to call it, that focus a lot on World War II. But they don't they, they talk about like five specific things. They leave a lot out. So I always find it fun to like, nobody's talked about this before, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know. My bad. Today we're not talking about any of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Never mind that bullshit. Here's some uh, Mongols. Yeah. Now, Kublai Khan is an interesting guy, uh, and we really can't go into him all the way here, but he presided over the breakup of the massive United Mongol Empire that had once been under the control of his brother. Kublai called for an assembly of warriors to have them pick him as his brother's successor, which, of course, pissed off a lot of other people and led to the empire shattering into largely four different pieces. And Kublai, Kublai, <laughs> and Kublai Khan really didn't care. The others took over breakaway Mongol states in what today would be like Iran, Russia, and other places, but he didn't want those. He wanted what was the most important part of the empire, China. <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're about to run into some uh, pretty big logistical challenges. Can't imagine what. Anyway, let's let's go through history and see everybody else who's run into this problem. Um, he did something pretty remarkable while he was doing this. He abandoned much of the trappings of Mongol life and adopted what you could consider a Chinese lifestyle and attitude. Traditionally, mm. Mongols were nomads of the grassy steppes. Famously, everybody probably knows at least that about them living it and lee harvey oswald was the master of the grassy knoll fuck you (laughs) (laughs) it it was gang it it, it was chingus khan on the grassy knoll with a fucking bow and arrow it released the zapruder film we'll know kublai khan was there goddamn mongols keep killing my presidents um they lived in you know mobile yurts um they moved around a lot they tended herds of livestock living on cheese mare's milk and hummus which is a kind of fermented horse milk that gets you fucked up 
Oh, oh yeah. Which has I've to be lo- the worst drunk ever. I've seen uh, videos on TikTok of like people in like Kazakhstan drinking that shit, and I really want to try it. I would 100% try it if it was offered to me. Now, if you're listening to this, and you're going to bring fermented milk to the live show to try to get one of us to drink it, you're not a Mongol. I'm not drinking your milk. <laughs> don't, bring, don't bring strangers your milk. I feel like Customs and Border Control will flag that immediately, although they do let me in with like 1,200 cigarettes Dude, every time. The, the last time I was at the UK, I didn't speak to a single fucking customs person. They didn't even look at me. And that wasn't coming from the EU either. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody get like uh, if British customs really care, they'd have to hire a few people. Now, slowly Kublai Khan would absorb a lot of this Chinese culture and do his best to reform himself as a Chinese emperor and establishing a dynasty. He left most of the previous Chinese government and bureaucracy in place, of course, with Mongol supervision looking down at them. Con- Confucian traditions and rituals remained, though he and his people never stopped. You know. Being Mongols, they were conquerors, and so they saw the Chinese as inferior to them and untrustworthy, as you know most imperial powers tend to do. Rather than packing in the court with Chinese officials to help them govern and evolve and you know do whatever it is that they do, he did his best to surround himself with foreigners, like Marco Polo, for example. He, <laughs> he would show up at one point. Um, of course he did. Like it's really funny because uh, on my show about tattoo history, we talked about uh, Marco Polo's like time in Vietnam, seeing the tattooing practice there of like someone getting like a massive, a massive crocodile back piece done by hand. It's sick. And this is in like the twelfth century. I'd like to think of Marco Polo showing back up home with like barbed wire tribal tattoos and like a a butterfly lower back tattoo. It's like, you don't understand its culture. Yeah. He, I mean, he was technically on his gap year. So. <laughs> now, Kublai Khan also ran into other problems, mainly that no matter what title he gave himself, his own people would only ever see him as a Mongol and expected him to follow Mongol traditions. Traditionally, Mongol tribes gave complete obedience to a leader only in a time of war and conquest. The Khan's power, loyalty, and all all-around clout, you could say, depended entirely on his success in defeating enemies, conquering territory, but most importantly, getting that sweet, sweet loot. Yeah, like, this is the interesting thing when you talk about, like, the politics structure of nomadic um, cultures, is that, like, generally they operate on a kind of autonomous basis from group to group, and, like, very rarely do you see, like, massive amounts of people migrating and doing nomadic shit at the same time and are generally like united under times of conflict so it completely makes sense that like uh, he's he's a little bit like Margaret Thatcher in the Falklands War you know he was facing down losing an election needed a good war to bolster the voters and much like Margaret Thatcher he deployed the Mongol aircraft carriers many people don't know about this <laughs> <laughs> the Falkland Islands belonged to the Mongols <laughs> It's like a, a, a nuclear power submarine uh, surfaces and instead of launching torpedoes or whatever. It just fires a fucking horse off of a catapult. <laughs> Kublai Khan was the original Peronist. <laughs> oh, God. Well, condolences on losing the election, Kublai Khan. Um, now, now, this was easy enough for the Khan 
for a while, as he only controlled the north of China for a long time. The south of the country was still largely under the control of the Chinese Song Dynasty, making them an easy target for constant expansion and war. Now, while he was dealing with them, he also conquered Korea, which was important for the Mongols as they had something the Mongols traditionally did not, a tradition of seafaring and boating. Um, Who would have thought a whole bunch of horsemen from the steppe? Not great sailors, you know? Yeah, great MMA fighters, not great sailors. (laughs) Nurgamedov just scratching his head confusingly looking down at a speedboat. (laughs) <laughs> it's all it's all that fermented milk that's like you know it makes you strong like if you drink like if you drink a lot of fermented milk to get fucked up the chances are that you don't really have a tradition of boating is probably strong because if you did you'd get in the fucking boat and go somewhere where they have alcohol that is not made of fermented milk <laughs> but this makes sense of how they were such good warriors because think of how high protein that milk would have been and if you're drinking it to get fucked up you know you're riding around all day you're drinking this fermented milk you're getting your macros in you know Tom, you're, i have you're, an you're, idea <laughs> <laughs> Is this like the keto crickets again? <laughs> Get on that donk milk. It's- oh god, no. I don't like donk milk. Yeah, it's too late. It's it's been birthed. Joe, that infers that we're milking you and I am not a fan of uh, people imagining you jelking. Look, I got bills to pay. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe at the $25 Patreon tier to see Joe's feet. I thought that was going somewhere worse. I thought you were going to say subscribe to the $25 bill, uh, uh, Patreon to milk Joe. <laughs> no, that's the $2,500 a month. You get to milk Joe. Deal. Now- <laughs> it's called jilking. Now, uh, so he conquered Korea. He, he, he got all these people who are very good at boating, a very good tradition of seafaring, and also not too far away from Korea, famously, Japan. It didn't just sneak up on them. It's always been there. Um, welcome to Obvious Shit Joe Says, the podcast. Uh, now, the Khan knew about Japan thanks to Marco Polo, who informed him that Japan was ridiculously wealthy with gold, which is partially correct uh, marco polo did kind of not fully understand japan but he did know that much and you know the japanese at the time while you know not entirely unified but kind of were very friendly with the song dynasty and were trading with them which the khan was trying to put down now at first the khan reached out to japan in 1268 trying to be nice and courteous as they possibly could but you know they're Mongols. Um, it's, yeah, they, they fucked it up. Now, Japan at the time was ruled by Emperor Kamiyama. And as, as the emperors pretty much always were in Japan until the Meiji Restoration, he was more of a figurehead. The power really fell to Hojo Takemune, regent of the shogun, and the shogun is effectively the military dictator of Japan, right? Takemune had actually a fair amount of knowledge in comparison to most Japanese when it came to the Mongols, as his close advisor was actually a Buddhist monk from China who had survived the Mongols butchering his entire monastery while he was there. Um, Now, the Mongols actually spared the man that would become his advisor because according to the monk, so, you know, who knows if this is true or not, but according to the monk, he was so calm and peaceful during this massacre of this Buddhist temple, the Mongols just left him alone. (laughs) 
<laughs> like, this guy, he's, he's taking this way too well, bro. We should just leave him. I'm scared. Yeah, he his vibe seems pretty chill. You know, I think we just leave him. Yeah. Um, it, the Mongols famously attuned to vibe shifts. Um, and you know, I mean, I you could make that okay, argument. Fair enough. Yeah, it's true. God damn it, Tom. Fuck you. <laughs> We're surviving the Mongol vibe shift. <laughs> Sitting in a town that's being besieged by the Mongols, and f- severed heads are flying overhead from catapults. Like, man, I really feel like the vibes are fucked up in here. <laughs> <laughs> the the vibe shift is separating the vertebrae from your fucking skull. That is the ultimate. That's the last pentultimate vibe shift um now the monk told this story to takamune and he pretty openly explained them like you do not want to fucking trust these people then in the letter that the khan sent he addressed it to the king of japan not the emperor which was considered a grave fucking insult because according to the japanese the emperor was directly descended from amaterasu omikami the sun goddess so calling him a king made him a man not a divine being literally committing heresy and also just rude yeah, you, you you really don't want to piss off amaterasu uh do you have the the contents of the letter I I did I did have some of it, yeah. I did not put it in the podcast. I, I have it right here if you want me to read it. Cherished by the mandate of heaven, the great Mongol emperor sends this letter to the king of Japan. The sovereigns of small countries sharing borders with each other have for a long time been uh, concerned to communicate with each other and become friendly, especially since my ancestor governed at heaven's command innumerable countries from afar, disputed our power and slighted our virtue. Uh, Goryo rendered thanks for my ceasefire and for restoring their land and people when I ascended to the throne. Our relation is feudatory like a father and son. We think you already know this. Goryo is my eastern tributary. Japan was allied with Goryo and sometimes with China since the founding of your country. And by Goryo, he means Korea. Yeah. So, um, however, Japan has never dispatched ambassadors since my ascending to the throne. We are afraid the kingdom is yet to know this. Hence, we dis- we dispatched a mission with our letter, particularly expressing our wishes. E- uh, enter into friendly relations which- with one another uh, from now on. We think all countries belong to one family. How, uh, how are we in the right unless we comprehend this? Nobody would wish to resort to arms. Kublai Khan has, like, the globe emoji in his Twitter bio. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, you know, he believes that he is, uh, you know, um, is chosen by God to be the emperor of China. And according to their beliefs, he can be the only emperor. So therefore, the Japanese emperor cannot be emperor. And furthermore, it cannot be divine. So, like, there's, he's just, like, pissing all over every aspect of the Japanese. But, you know, it's not how you make friends. I mean, like the like the the concept of the divine right of kings is really weird when you think about it. It's like, you know, the reason the world is so fucked is because God is just kicking back. He's like, yeah, no, I was kind of made a mistake with that one. These guys now have now have the mandate of heaven. Yeah, you have lost the mandate of heaven. This is not a place of honor. Um, oh, that's the uh, that's the opening of the live show. <laughs> right before someone runs on stage and attempts to milk you. Oh no. Please don't. It's gonna be it's gonna be like Shinzo Abe, but instead of a doohickey, it's someone with a, gr- a fucking hole cam. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, we do not endorse milking Joe. We do endorse Hulk hands, though. This is not the first time they've come up on the show. <laughs> so this letter made the Japanese government uh, so mad that it even bothered to respond to it. So the Khan sent another emissary who was, again, ignored. Though this time the Mongols kidnapped two Japanese people. And this actually does not end the way you assume it does. They brought them back to China to show them all the wealth, the power, and the grandeur of the empire. Like, this is what you could belong to, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, send them back to Japan and let them spread the word of how great everything is. And, you know, like I said, literally the best thing that could happen to you if you're kidnapped by Mongols. But this did not seem to phase the Japanese. Between 1266 and 1273, the Mongols sent a further six letters, and all of them are pretty much the same. There is a demand for tribute and the veiled threats of what would happen to them if they did not submit. The Japanese lived 10,000 li across the sea, and although they were in constant contact with China, they did not carry out the practice of sending annual tribute. Yet in the past, the Chinese did not care. They would treat them, in brackets, the Japanese kindly when they came and would not interfere with them if they did not come. The old policy of the Chinese was that the receipt of tribute from abroad added little to the culture of kings, nor the absence of tribute detracted little from the prestige of the emperors. But now, under our sage emperor, all under the light of the sun and the moon are his subjects. You stupid little barbarians, do you dare defy us by not submitting? Yeah, uh, they kind of had the vibe of a guy who doesn't get a reply on Tinder. <laughs> uh, look, I... Uh... I really swiped left on the, the Mongols. Is, is left the bad one? I, I don't know. The youths are going to have to tell us. That's fine. <laughs> You're supposed to be the young one of the podcast. God damn it, Tom. I haven't used a dating app in like nearly five years. I so never have. Yeah. I'm too old. Um, you, just, you, you just used to stand outside with a sign saying, want to milk me? And, you know. It, it, it brings in a unique person, you know? One after my yeah. heart, and also my milk. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is fucking off the rails. <laughs> so the Khan sent his personal representative, Zhao Liang Bai, in 1270. The Japanese damn near murdered him on the spot before finally, like, hold up, pump the brakes on this one, everybody breathe, get rid of him. Uh, and, they, and they just told him to leave instead. But he was like, you know... A horse hair, you know, using a a, a a kind of measurement that the Mongols would, I assume, use when doing absolutely nothing, um, from dying, from getting his head cut off. Um, and this turned out was this turned out to be the last straw for the Khan. He began planning for war. However, this is actually a massive undertaking, unlike anything the Khan had ever done before. Mostly because it required a full-scale naval invasion. It was so large that the Khan seemed to underestimate the time it would take for him to get together 900 ships and 25,000 men that had got delayed over and over again for months. The Mongol fleet finally left Korea on October 29th, 1274, towards their first two targets. Two islands, Tsushima, of Ghost of Tsushima fame, um, a video game which I have yet to be able to play, and Iki. The idea being they would act as a communication logistical hub for the possible invasion of Kyushu, the southernmost of Japan's home islands. On Tsushima, the Mongol fleet appeared on the horizon 
and its 60-year-old deputy governor, So Sukakuni, ran out to rally his forces of around 80 guys. <laughs> like, look, the so for any nautical people, the crossing between uh, Korea and Japan, depending on the time of year, can be much easier sailing or much more difficult. If you are in the We call that season, foreshadowing. <laughs> yes. When you are in the seasons where typhoons are much more common, you're pretty much fucked. And unless they were liaising with, you know, Korean sailors who have obviously done this trip quite a lot, I don't think they would have expected what was about to come. Well, they the the Koreans were 100% manning their ships. They were doing all of this. Um, yeah. And, you know... But they were just like, fuck these guys. Uh, they will get there. Hold, hold that thought. Now, these guys, these the samurai that were mustered and rallied on Tsushima were mostly mounted samurai along with their retainers. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the Mongols were unloading a thousand men and their horses and catapults, something the Japanese had never seen before, which must have been fucking terrifying. Yeah, like you just see this giant, like, whatever type of projectile flying through the air, you would freak the fuck out. <laughs> hey, bro, what what is that flying through the air? Uh, is that... Oh, God, it's raining comets or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, like, being, being a soldier at, like, any point in history must have been terrifying because you go into battle... And you just see some new shit that's about to kill you. And that's going to happen a lot to the Japanese during this saga. Now, the samurai were professional warriors, but they fought completely differently than the Mongols. They didn't fight in units, or they didn't even really have commanders in the traditional sense. Every samurai was an individual, and they did what they wanted. Sometimes they worked in small groups. And this is not a great thing to be doing when organized units of Mongol warriors came at them. When I mean, they're also outnumbered like fucking 100 to 1, so it really doesn't matter. The samurai, outnumbered and with no hope of reinforcement, fought to the death as their honor deserved and, you know, demanded. Not that the Mongols were going to take prisoners. Yeah. Before long, they were all dead, and the Mongols killed everyone on the island that they could find. And then they burnt down every single building. Yep. This served um, a purpose, though. Uh, also, a sidebar for anyone interested, um, get the Dothraki in Game of Thrones, a lot of people attribute uh, their whole characterization to the Mongols. It's actually to the Scythians. I assume who the were, Huns. Uh, no, it was the Scythians, because the Scythians were like another nomadic, uh, horse-riding-based uh, culture from the steppes, but they predate the Mongols by, I think they were like 500-ish BC. Yeah. We'll have to sidebar over. We'll we'll have to contact George R. R. Martin when he's done writing all of those books that he's not writing. <laughs> now, burning everything down and killing everybody served a purpose. It was a terror weapon that the Mongols had been using since effectively they became the the threat that they were. Submit without resistance, and nothing will happen to you. Resist, and well, you got our postcard right. After the fall of Tsushima, Iki came next. Taria Takagawa, the island's deputy governor, and uh, you know when you're deputy governor, you're also the commander of the local forces, had prepared for the invasion since he had heard what was going on over in Tsushima. Though 
There's only so much he could do. He had 40 samurai. Yeah, they're really not prepared for Yeah, that. it doesn't matter how much you prepare, man. You might as well just lay down on the beach and be like, just stab me. I'm laying down to, like, I don't even want, I don't want to die tired, man. Just fucking gut me. You know. I mean, like, after a series of increasingly threatening letters, you think that you would maybe bolster your defenses a little bit? Ah, one of the problems with, you know, no central government. Uh, I mean, yeah, to be fair, they were too busy fucking fighting each other. Pretty much, yeah. Now, the deputy governor ordered all of the women and children he could find behind the walls of Hinosume Castle and waited. Though, the term castle might be a bit strong here. It was a wooden shack, especially when you realize what the Mongols had been fighting all of these years. It was a, a few wooden walls, watchtowers. It was nothing for the Mongols. So... Knowing he was doomed, the deputy gover- governor sent a samurai along with his daughter towards Kyushu to warn them what was coming, and then he prepared for his last stand. Mongols rained arrows down on the castle and quickly burst through the gates. As the samurai prepared to fire their bows at close range at the charging Mongols, they saw something that really sounds like it would only exist in some grim, dark fantasy novel. The Mongols had made human shields of Japanese civilians. Literally, they had punched holes in their hands and ran ropes through the wounds, physically tying them together and forcing them to walk in a line. This horrified the samurai to the point that it stopped them in their tracks, and they were quickly overwhelmed by the Mongols and the slaughter across the castle and the island continued. I... I am just awestruck at this. Like, I know a lot of people talk about, like, in the, like, pre-modern period in terms of, like, you know, when you had, like, guns, the people who won were the people who, like, had the supremacy of violence. But, like, this is just a whole other level. And to not not only that, but, like, horrify a samurai. Like, samurai are, you know, lionized and turned heroic because people like swords and whatever. And they think of all this, you know, the Bushido code and... All this other nonsense, but they're intensely violent people. Like, uh, uh, someone of the samurai caste could and often did behead civilians if they looked at them because it was against the law. And the Mongols managed to do something so horrifically violent, it terrified the samurai. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, mark that down on your bingo card as uh, this is a new type of corpse infrastructure. Yeah, we got a, it's def- we got it's a fence. Defense- it's, it's a corpse fence. It's a defensive corpse inf- infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. We have other stuff, unfortunately, too. Uh, the Mongols afterwards collected all the corpses of women, stripped them naked, and nailed them to the sides of their ship. Jesus Christ. What? Some of them weren't dead yet. Holy fuck. So imagine this. You have a fleet of Mongol warships full of thousands of warriors sailing towards Kyushu and their ships are literally screaming in pain because they nailed people to them as they went. This is like, this is some, like you said, this is some fucking like Warhammer 40k shit. Yeah. Oh, look. Oh, here comes the wailing fleet. No, not that kind of wailing. The one where the women are screaming because they've been nailed to the side of it. Yeah. This is like some like chaos marines leaving the warp type shit. Exactly. It's so fucking wild. And it seems like it's so over the top that it was invented to make the Mongols look more brutal from a, by a foreigner. But 
The Japanese are not the only people that witness the Mongols do shit like this. This is not a one-off. Like, this is something that happened free... Like, well, one time is too many, but... (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. Exactly, like... So, they like, the Mongol fleet is making their way towards Kyushu with the goal of landing at Hakata Bay. The Japanese were ready for them this time, and they had days to prepare for the coming assault, putting up a call for reinforcements for all the provincial lords to send their samurai, the retainers, and anybody who had enough fingers attached to their hands that could hold a weapon. And we actually have no idea how many soldiers fought on either side of this. The history of Juan states that on either side was around three or 4,000, but we're not really sure. Whatever it was, it was the first large-scale battle the Japanese would ever fight against a foreigner, specifically a foreign invader. And since none of these guys were present on the other islands, because, you know, none of them lived... Nobody had any idea what to expect, and none of them knew how the Mongols fought. The Mongol infantry advanced up Hakata Bay in something similar to a phalanx. They smashed cymbals and drums. They chucked bombs at the Japanese samurai as they marched. And the bombs, the drums, and the cymbals, and the screaming terrified the samurai's horses. And most of them were forced to dismount and run into battle again on their own or in small groups on foot. Yeah, their ho- their horse f- uh, fear level bar just filled up <laughs> immediately. The horse and they just got booked booked off. The horse turns back to the samurai like, "Y'all can fucking stay, but I am leaving. Fuck this. The ground is exploding. What are the- what are these metal things making noise? I fuck this. I'm going to the horse union." Now, there's another thing that they learned pretty quickly. Now, at this point, the typical samurai sword, the katana, was not what we think of it as. It w- was still kind of a thing, but it hadn't turned into what it would. And so the samurai, as they ran into battle, found out that if they got their w- sword stuck in a Mongol's armor, it would fucking snap in half. And that's never happened to them before. Now, all of this didn't enrage the samurai as much as it did just really fucking confuse them. According to the Hachiman Gudokan, a source believed to be from right about after the invasion, quote, according to our manner of fighting, we must first call out by name from someone in the enemy ranks, and then they would meet us and we would attack in single combat. But they... The Mongols took no notice of such conventions. They rushed forward altogether in a mass, grappling with any Im- individuals they could catch and killing them. Just, just imagine, like the samurai, like sword out, like you with the face, whatever. Like they can't understand anything they're saying, and this whole, like, just one samurai in front of a wall of Mongol phalanx or shield wall, just I'm stabbing just immediately- them. And just immediately gets, like, turned into pink mist by a bomb. <laughs> yeah. The bro got evaporated Mongolian style. So, some other samurai's like, well, it didn't work for him, but I like my chances. Steps forward to do the same <laughs> thing, catches an arrow to the face. <laughs> well, shit. I used to be a samurai until I took an arrow to the face. I used to be a samurai until 80 Mongolians killed me. The, the Japanese force is pretty much immediately fractured by the nature of samurai combat. Individual honor and glory came over everything else, including listening to orders. For example, one samurai had been ordered not to rush forward since the, the Hakata mudflats were directly in front of them and horses would not be able to navigate it. 
The samurai, Sunigawa, said fuck all that, took his retainers and charged forward, immediately got stuck in the mud, as he had been warned, and the Mongols then pelted him with arrows. Nearly all of them died, and they had to be rescued by a different group of samurai. Fucking hell. As badly organized as the Japanese defenders were, they fought savagely, making the Mongols struggle for the first time over every inch of land. And Mm. the individual charges of honor and all that did actually work at various points. For example, Mm. at one point, the Mongol commander got shot in the face with an arrow because one guy had simply ran forward, thought that guy looks important, and just scored one in the T-slot. You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Bro got hit so hard he started (laughs) T-posing. Though by the end of the day, the samurai withdrew towards Mizuki Castle, which again was not really a castle. It was more of like a a dirt berm with a moat. It had been constructed just for this purpose, to protect the regional capital from an invading enemy, or more than likely act as a speed bump and possibly slow them down. Things were looking bad for Japan. The Mongols had set up a beachhead where they could send in the rest of their men, because remember, they've only been using a few thousand, and they brought tens of thousand. And they you know, could also unload supplies and continue their invasion of Kyushu. However... The Mongol expedition commander, Dan, wasn't the stereotypical hyper-aggressive Mongol military general. He was worried. Yeah, he, told, he told everyone to hold on. Boo. You're fired. Get fucked. Fuck you. <laughs> he was worried about camping overnight on the Japanese beach as like, you know, this. there must be thousands more samurai waiting in the distance. They're just going to pounce on us in the night when there absolutely was not. Mm-hmm. He was worried about the amount of men he was losing because he was also worried that he didn't have enough men to complete the invasion. So he Mm. ordered everybody to pack their shit up and he went back to Korea. Seemingly the only commander within the Mongol force that pushed back on this idea was actually Korean. And uh, he was promptly ignored. On their way back... I Now... I think a lot of this had to be because the Korean general knew the hazards of the water crossing and he mm. knew turning around at that point of time was like, that's kind of fucking dangerous, but he was ignored yeah. and virtually the entire Mongol invasion force was lost to a sunstorm, which is sometimes called a typhoon, but we actually can't be sure if it was or not. It could have just been rough seas. Thousands mm. were killed, but hold on survived. He, Held on. Hey! <laughs> Fuck you. I was right. And made it all the way back to Korea. Now, Japanese sources on this invasion often say the Mongols were sent running due to the tenaciousness of the samurai defenders. But in reality, from what anybody could tell, this is a little more than a scouting mission. This wasn't an actual Mongol attempt at taking Kyushu. This is evidenced by the fact that Holdan wasn't immediately executed for his failure when he got back to Korea, which is usually what would happen to a Mongol general who fucked up. The main game in town for the Khan was still the Song Dynasty in southern China. They were still holding on. Hey! <laughs> And this Japanese side quest, whatever, could have been like, you know, a scouting mission. It could have also been like, Mm. look what we can do. We will come back. You know, something like that. Now, for the Japanese, they were completely baffled. Showing back up on the beach and seeing that the Mongols had just left. 
Mm-hmm. As confusing as it was, the Shogunate was smart enough to know these guys would probably come back someday. Nobody just invades for a single day and never returns. Yeah. Orders were passed down to better organize the Kyushu samurai, and they began building forts, stone walls, castles, anywhere they thought the Mongols would be able to land more boats in the future. At the site of the, be- the last battle, Hakata Bay, they quickly built a six-foot wall and drove massive spikes into the beaches and rivers to make sure they couldn't land there again. Mm-hmm. But by 1275, the Song Dynasty had all but fallen, ending in a dramatic sea battle when the Song naval commander saw all was lost. So he hugged the Song emperor and jumped overboard with him in his arms rather than allow him to fall into the hands of the Mongols. <laughs> Honestly, it just it's, it's something of like the 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 climactic ending of an action movie. It fucking rules. We'll do an episode on mm. it one day. But with that little hurdle out of the way, the Khan once again turned his attention towards Japan. With the song gone, the Khan could begin putting together the largest invasion force that would ever be pointed towards a Japanese home island, which was almost broken. But then you know, nukes happened. Though building this would take years, and in the meantime, he again began sending emissaries to Japan. One went to Kyoto, the capital and the place of residence for the emperor. The emissary once again insisted on calling him a king rather than an emperor. As the Mongols insisted, the only emperor on earth was the Khan. He also gave the emperor orders to report to the Khan's court and explain why he had resisted the Khan's last invasion. The emissary was promptly taken out back and had his head cut off with a sword. Yeah, I I, I was a much more fan of uh, his earlier work in the court of the Crimson King. I'm not as big a fan of uh, in the court of the Golden Horde. You know, Robert Fripp was gone. Five more emissaries from the Khan were sent to Japan. All five got the the sword treatment, which you know, Ooh. literal killing the messenger. Not not great for diplomat diplomacy. Uh, and, you know, Japan already cut, thought they won once, so maybe they thought they could win again. Meanwhile, the Khan was amassing a huge army and massive navy, scraping together so many soldiers he actually ran out. So he emptied his prisons of men who had been sentenced to death with offers that if they returned alive, they would be freed. He had invented Mongol Wagner. I was literally about to say the same thing. <laughs> you have Genny Prigozhin in the Golden Horde. <laughs> that just sounds like a, a sequel to uh, the Golden Compass. Get on that. This time, the invasion would be a two-pronged assault. One from Korea, called the Eastern Route Army, which would aim for the same islands of Tsushima and Iki, and one from southern China, called the Southern Route Army, that would aim for the home island of Honshu. Between them, they had a combined force of 140,000 men. And the inv- oh, fucking huge. And the invasion would begin on June 14th, 1281. The Eastern Route Army landed on the islands and pretty much did the same thing they had done the first time. There wasn't much resistance. Anybody who had the misfortune of moving back into those islands had this, got the same treatment as the last ones. Uh, everyone was murdered. Anything that was put in their place was burnt down. The Eastern Army was supposed to finish their island-based slaughter and then wait for the Southern Army, which was supposed to get to the area around July 2nd. However, the Eastern Army decided, fuck waiting, we're going to invade the rest of Japan right now on our own. Then We're doing so well up until this part. Then they split their forces in half, 
sending one group to invade Hanshu and the other one to once again invade Kyushu, which was never a part of their plan. I love how everyone on Hokkaido was just chilling during this. Yeah, no, no better place to have a, you know, a timeshare. Yeah. Man, things look awfully smoky and full of corpses over in that direction. We should stay here. <laughs> Is that ship screaming? What the fuck? Yeah, it's just like sailing past Hokkaido and they're like, yeah, that doesn't look good. Uh, okay, let's just uh, chill out and uh, not get involved. The Honshu force landed at Nagato and ran directly into one of the Japanese walls that had been constructed in such a way that samurai archers could simply sit behind them and rain arrows down on the invading Mongols. Then, mm-hmm. something the Mongols didn't have to worry about during their last invasion appeared, a Japanese navy. Oh, hell yeah. Small Japanese boats swarmed the larger Mongol ones, hooking onto them with grappling hooks and samurai climbed aboard. Soon the Mongol navy found themselves fighting samurai in hand-to-hand combat. Granted, the, the Japanese navy was very small and the samurai on those tiny boats are very few in number. And the Mongol navy was fucking huge. But that didn't seem to slow them down. Every time they batted away a dozen or so Japanese boats, like another swarm would appear. And then after the Japanese did this a few times, the Mongols tied all of their boats together and created wooden walkways between them. So if one boat was boarded by, you know, a, a, fall, a small fishing boat full of angry samurai, Mongol sailors from other boats could rush over and help them. That is how they decided to, to combat this. And this will become important later. The fighting in Nagato lasted just about a day before the Mongols had to give up and pull back to Iki Island. Then, the landing attempt at Hakata Bay ended in complete and total failure. The wall built there to stop them turned out to work pretty goddamn well. The Mongols pulled up, saw the beach completely filled with spikes and walls and samurai on top raining arrows down on them that they just kind of bobbed around a bit in the bay until they realized, well, this sucks, and they pulled back to the islands of Shika and Noko to wait for the rest of their army like they were originally fucking supposed to. Yeah, sometimes, you know, following orders is a good idea. Sometimes. Especially if your boss is the Khan. I feel like disobeying orders, if your boss is Kublai Khan, is the worst thing you could do. I mean, he'll kill you in very inventive ways, as we have discovered. The two armies landed another force at Hakata Bay, which devolved into a two-week-long stalemate as swarms of Japanese boats did their thing, and the Mongol fleet could find nowhere to land. According to the Hachiman Gurukan, the, the same source I used before, one samurai led a single-man assault against a Mongol boat in a, a paddle boat of his own, killed 21 people, took all of their heads, and set fire to a boat before escaping. My man's putting Eugene Bullard numbers on the board, you know? <laughs> I don't even know. How, how do you handle all those heads on the way back? Yeah. Thank God they have braids. You can carry them all by a handle. <laughs> Now, during this stalemate, the weather had begun to turn on the Mongols. The Korean seamen, who manning all the boats, repeatedly warned their Mongol leaders like, uh, guys, we need to get the fuck out of here. A storm is coming, and this is not the place you want to get caught. Yeah, they're, they're looking at them, and they're like, it's getting fucking windy. It's, it's not a good time to be bobbing up and down in a rickety wooden ship in Hakata Bay at this point in time. I mean, and if anybody was to be listened to, it would be the Koreans. They were literally brought there just to sail the fucking boats. And the Mongols completely ignored them, deciding, 
fuck these guys, many Korean sailors cut their boats free from the Mongol boats and set sail back towards Korea. That, for the Mongols, should have been a goddamn hint. Then, on August 14th, a massive typhoon slammed into the Mongol fleet, and because the Mongols were all tied together, none of them could get away. Huge groups of the ships were thrown into the rocks of the bay, while others were ripped apart and overturned by the sheer force of the wind and waves. 90% of the entire fleet and everyone on it were destroyed overnight. Jesus Christ. Thousands of Mongol survivors washed ashore, only to be greeted by samurai, who then cut their heads off and chucked them back into the sea. It's like that. You, you, it's kind of like, you know, um, that shipping container full of Garfield phones. <laughs> and that, like, one beach where, like, Garfield phones keep, like, washing up just, like, years after it's just Mongol heads, like, washing up on the shore, like a message in a bottle. Yeah. It, or a Garfield phone. Uh, I mean... Who's to say which one is worse, honestly? You know, both of them hate Mondays. I assume the Mongols love lasagna. Yeah. Now, the jet... Wait, wait, wait. I, I want to see... I want to see uh, what day was at 15th of August 1281. Oh, it was a Friday. Fuck. <laughs> that joke doesn't work now. God damn it. The Japanese defenders credit this massive storm, this typhoon, to the kami, or the gods, for their victory, and the typhoon was sent to them for the protection, hence creating the term kamikaze, or the divine wind. The aftermath of the invasion was, well, bad. Most of the entire Mongol fleet was gone, and Korea, the shipbuilding capital of the Mongol Empire, the Chinese Empire, was left without the ability to build more. They had built so many ships in preparation for this invasion, they had stripped Korea bare of trees. There was not enough trees left to build replacements. It also marked the limit of Mongol expansion and the peak of the Khan's power. He wanted to launch another invasion of Japan, but the lack of boats made it impossible. So he chose to campaign south of China into Vietnam, which also ended in failure. Kublai Khan died in 1294, morbidly obese and riddled with gout from living that good life of an emperor. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Japan, you would think this triumph victory would lead to great things, but it didn't. All of the construction that the government, the Kamakura Shogunate, ordered to prepare for the Mongols had exploded their goddamn budget. Because remember, the Shogunate is a military dictatorship, but the day-to-day like the day -day running of Japan at the time was led to was left to daimyos, like uh, regional warlords, feudal warlords of domains, including the vast majority of taxation. So like the concept of a strong spending central government wasn't really a thing. So, so like that, that, that could have unified Japan to like the level of like, say the Meiji restoration would, but you know, instead you got a military dictator in the Bakufu. So, you know, he just detonates the budget and things get worse because the Shogun, you know, rightly insisted that the projects continue because these motherfuckers are going to come back. So he's dumping more and more money into this defensive budget. I won't call it a military budget because there is no like army of Japan, but a defensive structure budget, as well as, having to give money to the local daimyos to keep soldiers on a payroll effectively and samurais on retainer and stipend and fed and all this other shit. Like, super expensive. And even worse, 
Samurai and their daimyos were normally rewarded for their service in war by being given land. However, it was a defensive war. The first one Japan ever had to fight against an outsider. The shogun had nothing to give them. So it was like, uh, well, thanks for defending your country. Like, bitch, where's my money? Like, I want my farm. Like, well, we can't give you anything. You didn't conquer another daimyo or whatever. Like, there's nothing to give. <laughs> this led to, like, the, the daimyo and the feudal lords and the retainers and the samurai slowly began to turn against the Kamakura shogunate, which led to a quick succession of emperors until one, Emperor Go Daigo, took the throne in 1318. After years of unhappiness with the shogun military government, owing to unhappy lords, samurai, a budget that's been imploded with the concept of building a couple walls, the emperor eventually overthrew the Kamakura shogunate, attempting to institute direct rule from the imperial throne, which only succeeded for a couple years before he failed the next generation of a shogunate took back over the Ashikaga shogunate, which would last for hundreds of years. Though there is one last footnote that this entire episode kind of creates. Like one thing that completely off topic, but it's very interesting. Obviously, we talked about samurai. We talked about their swords a little bit, but they did not have their ubiquitous katana that everybody knows them as being armed with. They still vaguely looked the same. The, car- the curve of the blade was much harsher and they were much more brittle. Hence why when they hit an armored soldier, uh, an armored Mongol soldier, they had they bend too much and they would break. So Japanese swordsmiths began working on a new forging process, something that has since become legendary. They com- this combination of soft and hard steel to optimize the temperature and timing of the heating and the cooling of the blade made the swords much lighter, but also much stronger, and they're able to hold a sharper edge. And they also made the curve much more gentle and lengthened the tip making it better at stabbing armored opponents and creating what we all know now as the legendary, a bit like overwrought katana. So thanks, Kublai Khan, I guess. <laughs> Weebs everywhere owe a debt of gratitude to the Khan. Yeah, yep. And that is the divine wind, uh, you know, that the time that the Mongols got bitch left by a breeze. oh this shit rules like you know i love when nature gets involved it's not often you 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 upset nature you get smacked twice Mm. and honestly like a lot of this is apocryphal um i I do have to end this with a bit of a an asterisk that the number of 140,000 mongol soldiers is thought to be pretty inflated it could be anywhere mm. from 50 to 100, but even as little as 20,000. Mm-hmm. Nobody's entirely sure. And the Japanese, obviously, this turned into a mythological story for mm. the Kamakura shogunate, the empire, uh, the sorry, the emperor, and then the Ashikaga shogunate. And then it just worked its way into mythos, and the number just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. Mm. Um, but what is 100% known is that they got... The shit kicked out of them by storms twice. Hence why uh, the, this concept of, you know, the divine wind being barely trained teenagers flying their planes into aircraft carriers became a thing. And uh, yeah, they got a cool name to go with it, at least. <laughs> they got that for them. Yep. They didn't do anything except, you know, kill themselves. But 
They didn't get a sick name, and that's all we can hope for. Tom, we do a thing on this show called Questions from the Legion. If you'd like to ask us a question from the Legion, donate to the show. You can ask us your question on our Discord, on Patreon. Um, you can write a letter, throw it into a typhoon, and it will land in London, and Tom will answer it. I'm just raining destruction on London with every single one of these. <laughs> now, this question comes to us via the Patreon, and it says, everybody has heard of a crazy cat lady. What is the man equivalent of a cat lady? Ooh. I got one um, immediately. Okay, snake you go, guy. Oh, yeah. Weird snake guy. There's something unnerving about a snake guy. Like, like any guy who's kind of into reptiles kind of gives me the wig a little bit. I will, um, I will say there can absolutely be a crazy cat guy as well. But oh, you know, 100%. for the sake of the answer, I'm going to say sword guy, knife guy, snake guy. Most of the time, that's the same guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I uh, I think if it's going to be, like, guys who are too into something, like, I think the the general thing I will agree with uh, with you is, like, you know that, like, I studied the blade meme? Like, any guy who's kind of like that. Um, Any guy who is, like, I don't know, like, super into the Romans is like, you know, but is like, will, you know, I was like, oh, that's not accurate, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, mm, yeah, you're, you're a little bit weird. If it were to go on animals, I would say if it's a guy who's like super into his dog, like I'm not talking about whoa, like, you whoa, love whoa, your dog. I'm being what attacked a- here. No, no, no. I'm not talking about like guys that like really love their dogs. And we're not we're not creating a binary here of like cats are for women, dogs are for men. It's more so like, I don't know, it's like dudes who are like super like and I'm not talking like having a normal dog. I'm talking like if you were a dude with an XL bully who was like super into owning an XL bully and like dresses as Fred Perry in a flat cap. Yeah, like if you were the type of dude to buy a chain for your dog. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, that yeah. I, I, all right. In closing, I offer a concession. Okay. Something we can both agree on. Okay. Ferret guy. The thing about ferrets that people don't realize is ferrets smell really bad. Actually, no. Yeah. Everybody yeah. knows on that this, about ferrets. No. <laughs> on this note, on this note, anyone, and this goes for men, women, non-binary people, whatever. If you own an animal that has is not generally domesticated, if you own that as a pet, you are a freak. How like dare you, you a- talk about my Komodo dragon that way? No, look, if you can domesticate a Komodo dragon and not die of necrotitis, cool, that's impressive. But if like if you have like a raccoon as a pet, or if you have, like, a fox as a they pet. They are always or, weirdos. Um, or, like, the people I see on, like, TikTok who have, like, Bengal cats as pets. I'm like, you are just begging to die. I I will say the ferret person, from my experience, normally tends to be a guy. Okay. Um, I, I, I've, I've I don't never know really... why. Don't get me wrong. I have no idea why, which is why, uh, which is why I said crazy snake guy, because every weird person I've ever met that owned a snake was a guy, and they normally also had a ponytail. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, like, my thing is just like, just get a normal animal that has been domesticated as a pet. Don't get a Bengal cat. Don't get a serval. Like, 
just get a normal cat, yeah. please. Um, most animals don't probably need to live in your apartment. Um, yeah. Tom, plug your show. Listen to the Beneath Skin, the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. By the time this comes out, I will have interviewed a family of artists from Jerusalem who have been tattooing for 800 years. Uh, that sounds interesting to you. Uh, check it out. Listen to his show. This is the only show that I do. Uh, but thank you for listening. If you like what we do here, consider supporting us on Patreon. Get years of bonus content, Discord access, stickers, ebooks, audiobooks, bonus series, all sorts of fun stuff. You get pre-orders on merch first. People who supported the show got first dibs on our live show tickets, which are now completely fucking sold out somehow. Um, so thank you so much for making that a thing that occurred uh, that I never would dream to be possible. Um, so thank you so much. Consider supporting us. Leave us a review on wherever it is you listen to the podcast. And until next time, uh, don't do any of the shit we talked about the Mongols doing. It's generally frowned upon.